0: Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him. So that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables. Saying, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked at them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And again in verse 18. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When someone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, Then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but he endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises, because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received the seed on good ground is he who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty some 30. In Matthew 13, Jesus is going to explain what's been called the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He's going to use a series of eight parables. Jesus is going to use the familiar to help explain the unfamiliar. We've all heard the expression, The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. That's exactly right. But Jesus believes the way to a man's heart is through his ears. In brief, Matthew's recorded the king's words in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. His works in chapters 8 and 9. And in an effort to expand the kingdom, we looked at chapter 10. And then we saw a growing crisis of hostility, opposition, rejection in verses 11, or chapters 11 and 12. And so now there is a shift that will take place in what is happening The shift is going to be away from the leadership of Israel and even the people of Israel to anyone and everyone who's willing to listen to what he has to say. And so he's going to begin to speak to them in parables. He's going to talk about the purpose of the parables. And we're going to begin by looking at one of those parables, the parable of the sower, or it's also been called the the parable of the seed. He's going to talk about the hard heart, the shallow heart, the crowded heart, and the fruitful heart. Before he begins unfolding these parables, we'll see, in part, the purpose of the parables. And so we begin in verse 1. It says, on the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. Some have seen in this simple sentence a picture, again, of what's happening in the ministry of Jesus. For those of you who are unfamiliar, the events of chapter 12 have taken place on a single day. Remember, there's been aggression, opposition, difficulty. It says on the same day, the day that took place in chapter 12, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. Clearly, Jesus is in a literal house and he leaves and he walks out of Capernaum and he goes to the literal Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. It's a freshwater lake that is in the Rift Valley just below Mount Hermon. The lake itself is about 13 miles by four and a half miles. The Jewish leaders... Become a type and a picture of the house of Israel. They've refused the message of the king. They've refused Jesus. Now Jesus is going to subtly but appropriately turn his message to the Gentiles, the nations. Again, I think symbolized by the sea. In several passages in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the nations of the Gentiles are seen as a sea. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 5. Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, pictures the nations like a tumultuous ocean. This turning to the nations, or anyone who's willing to listen to him again, represents this new phase Remember, Jesus is the king and he's the king in the kingdom. But what's going to happen to the kingdom if the people have refused the king and the kingdom? I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is going to be speaking about a time frame between his two advents, his coming as the king And his second coming as the king. This has caused teachers and scholars for centuries to wonder, well, what am I to think about what I'm reading? How am I to think about it? And in verse 11, there's a little hint. We're going to skip ahead just for a moment. We're going to cover this at greater length later. It says, he said to them, because it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. What Jesus is doing is he's using an explanation of why from here on out the words that he's speaking is going to be concealed from some people and revealed to other people. Again, is this a reference to Messiah's kingdom here on the earth sometime in the future? Or is this a reference to Messiah's kingdom in his absence? I tend to think that this is a reference to the Messiah's kingdom in his absence. Verse 13 of chapter 13 says, Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. At this time, a group of people are going to come, a mixed multitude, if you will. They're going to come in truth. Some are going to come in pretense. The kingdom begins with the sowing of the word of Christ in his earthly ministry and then continues in the present age. So the parables, in part, are going to serve as an outline of God's program. And because they serve as an outline of God's program, there's also going to be opposition from Satan to God's program. And so in verse two, it says, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, to Jesus, so that he got into a boat and sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore. The picture, of course, is Jesus is sitting. He gets into a boat. And for those of you who have been to the northern part of the Galilee, you know that there's a little backdrop of a mountain. The sea itself is in a valley. Jesus gets into the boat, and he sits, and the multitude gathers, and it forms a natural amphitheater. Now, in that culture and society, it's different from our culture and society. I'm going to stand throughout the course of this message. Most of you will sit throughout the course of this message. In that ancient culture and society, the teacher sat, and the students stood So now, why does Jesus speak in parables? Look what it says in verse 3. Then he spoke many things to them in parables. A parable is a word that means that you take two things and you place them side by side and then you draw a comparison. In order to understand the parables, I'm going to give you a little illustration and story. Years ago, a pastor friend of mine unwittingly left his keys to his suitcase at home. We were having a conference here in, in Colorado. And they flew in, and because they left their keys at home, they asked if I might pick the lock on their suitcase. Well, I worked for an hour on one side of the case, and I was able to get the lock open. But when I tried to open the other side of the suitcase, I broke a piece of metal inside of the lock. And as you can imagine, that meant that my efforts failed. And so the pastor's wife, a little bit in frustration, calls the locksmith of the resort. By this time, it's midnight. And the locksmith comes out, and in 50 seconds, he does what it took me an hour because he had the right tools and the right training. The locksmith, because of his tools and training, was able to do what I couldn't do. We also have to have the proper tools and training to unlock the stories of Jesus Jesus is going to make it clear as we continue our study in the parables that understanding this parable is going to be the key that unlocks the meaning of all of the rest of the parables. When I was a very young man, Pastor Chuck, when he began teaching through the parables, he said... I don't recommend that you teach the parables unless you've been a Bible teacher for at least five years. I understand now why. I've been a Bible teacher for about 40 years. So here goes. Why does Jesus teach in parables? The answer in part is going to be given in verses 10 through 17 which we're going to look at at length a little bit later in our study. Not today, but next week. Two reasons are offered. Because of the lethargy and the slowness of the people to understand the message of Jesus. And second, because the ancient writers prophesied in Psalm 78, verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. Unquote. Jesus didn't speak in parables to confuse people or to condemn people, but rather to reveal the condition of their hearts. And so it is. Jesus speaks and he exposes the condition of our hearts. The lost and the lazy won't understand. But those who are interested in the truth, it will be like light from heaven and rain from above. Remember, a parable is a short story. It's not just an allegory. And the point of the parable is to illustrate or draw attention through some earthly thing to a heavenly truth. Remember, its purpose is to both Conceal the truth from the blind and reveal the truth to those who want to know the truth, who have a willing heart. And like I said, the word parable itself means to place side by side and then compare. When we look into the parables, we have to be sensitive And careful so that we understand the culture and the language of the people that Jesus is addressing. We don't have to find meaning or seek meaning in every single detail of the story. As a matter of fact, we should bear in mind that the story was meant to be heard. Not simply a manuscript to be studied. The parable is like a good short story. Or like a joke. In a joke, the main point of the joke is the punchline. And so when Jesus is telling a story, he's calling people to a concrete situation rather than to just simply some abstract theological idea. Jesus knew that his stories would call real people to make real decisions. In real life. And so, stories have two, what's the word I'm looking for? They, a story can do one of two things. It can unite the audience or it can separate the audience. Let me give you an example. A man and his wife were spending their honeymoon in Europe after a very long and happy courtship and the couple decided that they were going to take a carriage ride through the beautiful mountain scenery. And after a few miles, the horse stumbled, and it went off course, and the man got down from the carriage. He looked the horse in the eyes, and he sternly said, That's one. A little bit further down the path, the horse stumbled again. This time, it fell over a fallen tree, and the man dismounted, and he looked the horse in the eyes, and he boldly said, That's number two. And he got back in the carriage. And as the afternoon sun began to set and the woman's horse once again lost its footing on a mossy slope, the man dismounted. And he got in front of the horse. He stared it firmly in the eyes and he said, that's three. And he removed a pistol and he shot the horse dead. And the woman, you can imagine, was fairly upset when he killed the horse. She said to her husband, This is terrible. How could you do such a thing? And he said, that's one. Yeah, you guys are starting to get it. You're going, oh, no. She's made a terrible mistake. He reveals what he needs to reveal during the course of the courtship, but conceals some very important things if you're going to make a lifetime commitment the Lord is going to use parables as a way to separate certain people. He's going to separate the honest and the sincere from those who are merely curious about his ministry or critical of his ministry. In Mark chapter 4, verse 10, we read, and when he was alone, those around him, the 12, asked him about the parable. In verse 11, he said to them, To you it's been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. So that seeing they may see and not perceive. And hearing they may hear and not understand. Lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. These sayings have been called the hard sayings of Jesus. Now, there are many purposes that we can give to parables. But let me give you at least four very quickly. And these four are going to be important throughout our study of the parables over the next several weeks. Let me give you four, and we're going to be revisiting them from time to time. Number one, the condition of the heart determines its receptivity to the truth. You should let that sink in. The condition of my heart, the condition of your heart will be the main thing that determines whether or not you can receive the truth. Number two, those who receive truth, act upon it, receive more truth. Number three, those who reject the truth, ignore the truth, deny the truth, will lose what little they possess. Number four, we have to respond to the truth. It's not good enough to just simply hear it. We must respond to it. So this story is often called the parable of the sower, But the real focus is on the soil. Jesus will reveal the meaning of the story in verses 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23. There are three important elements number one, the seed. Number two, the sower. And number three, the soil. The focus of the story is on the soil. The soils are representative of the human heart. The soil is representative of the human heart conditions. The purpose of the parable is to draw the serious seeker to the truth. For the person who says, I want to know the truth. I want to obey the truth. I want the truth to be a part of my life. And this should beg a question. One each and every one of you should ask yourself right at this very moment, is that you? Is that a statement about you? Are you a person who wants to know the truth about God and the truth about Jesus and the truth about life and the truth about the future? The second thing then is this parable Will reveal the condition of the heart. Your heart. My heart. And I want you to understand why. Because the words of Jesus are powerful and penetrating. Again, it begs yet another question Have you had a spiritual heart checkup lately? What kind of condition is your heart in? Not too long ago, I had a physical, and my doctor said, you have a myocardial infarction. I go, what? He goes, a heart murmur. There's something just a little bit off in your heart. But don't be alarmed. A lot of people have this, but I'm not concerned about it right now. He said, down the road, we may need to give you an electrocardiogram. But guess what? When you hear Jesus' words in this parable, it's going to provide a kind of spiritual echocardiogram. It's going to be a test that it's going to reveal the circumstances of your heart and the condition of your spiritual heart. And so he begins with the hard heart. Look what it says at the end of verse three, behold. It's Jesus' way of saying, look and understand A sower went out to sow. Now remember, he's on this boat. He's out on the lake. The crowds have gathered. This is an agricultural society. It could have very well been that a person was at that very moment taking seed and tossing the seed. And he goes, behold, a sower sets out to sow. Jesus tells us who the sower is. The sower is the person who speaks the words of of the kingdom. How do we know that? Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Jesus also claims in part to be the sower. How do we know that? In chapter 13, verse 37, if we look ahead, it says, He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. Jesus proclaims that he is the person who sows the good seed. That means the words that come from God, and he seeks to sow them into your life and into your heart. His words are the seed and the soil is the heart of the person hearing. So the Bible, remember at the book of Genesis, remember God formed man from the dust, the dirt. God formed the man from the dust of the earth. I think that this is very, very interesting because from the very beginning, how appropriate Jesus likens our hearts to dirt or to soil. The seed is the Word of God in verse 19. In Mark chapter 4, verse 14, we read, The sower sows the Word. My wife is working on a special project with our grandchildren. They take cups and they take seed, carrot seed and zucchini and onion and all kinds of different vegetables. And like many Italian people, you, you make a vegetable garden and you get to learn about how the seed will germinate and it, it will puncture the soil and come through. A seed has the germ of life. In the New Testament, we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, it says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but an incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And so the Bible pictures these words of the New Testament serving as seeds that penetrate into your heart and germinate and spring forth and bring life. Seeds are... Small, but powerful. A seed can push past rock and concrete. Many of you know this firsthand. As you see little bits of weeds pop up in your driveway, and you wonder, how did they find that little crack? How did they find that orifice? Seed can push past things that are hard, but seed can also produce fruit. In this case, fruit becomes a euphemism for Christian living and Christian character. And so in verse 4, look what it says. And as he sowed, some of the seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. The first heart Jesus describes is the hard heart. In ancient times, you didn't plant seed on footpaths or roads because remember the ground has been hard pounded down impenetrable Jesus uses that phrase in verse 19 when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it when the wicked one comes and snatches it away what is sown in his heart this is he who received the word by the wayside that's that hard place some people have very hard hearts. Most of you know the reason why. The person with the hard heart has almost certainly lived a hard life. It may have been a life of deprivation or hardship or abuse, a life of failed relationships. A life of bitter disappointment. A a life of drug and alcohol abuse. But a hard heart isn't limited to those things. Pride can toughen up the surface of your soul and your heart. Sin can do exactly the same thing. Jesus says, and the birds came and devoured them. So what's the enemy of the word of God in the hard heart? According to Jesus in verse 19, it's Satan. The seed falls, but it doesn't penetrate. It is taken away. Often, birds in the Bible are representative of evil. In the Old Testament, when Joseph has a dream, there's a picture of birds coming and and pecking out a person's eyes. Sorry, bird lovers. Birds are representative of sin. Like the beaten path, the hard heart is well-traveled. The hard heart is busy all the time so busy that it doesn't have time for spiritual matters. It has time for television. It has time for recreation. It has time for athletics, but it doesn't have time for Jesus, and it doesn't have time for prayer, and it doesn't have time for God. And, And note, the problem isn't the sower, Jesus. The problem isn't the seed, the word of God. The problem is the soil, It's the heart. Do you know someone with a hard heart? Maybe you're the one with the hard heart. Once you know the answer to that question, rather than just simply be content, you should ask yourself a different question. Is there a cure? Is there a cure for the hard heart? And I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is yes. According to the Bible, you have to break up the fallow ground. God told Jeremiah, break up the fallow ground, don't sow among the thorns. He said break up the fallow ground and it meant to move the surface of the soil of your heart and I'm going to suggest to you that the word of God and the law of God is God's plow. It's the thing that sinks deep into that hard heart and then creates the furrow so that the seed can drop and that's why it's so difficult for you if you open your Bible and you read the Bible and you embrace the Bible and you go, it's convicting me of my sin it's convicting me of my wickedness it's causing my heart to stir then that means it's doing its job because that's exactly what it's supposed to do The law exposes our sin. The law exposes what's wrong in our heart. It reveals the sinful condition. And so Jesus moves from the hard heart to the shallow heart. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, some fell on stony places where they didn't have much earth. And they immediately sprang up because there was no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. Because they had no root, they withered away. By the way, the soil in Israel, for the most part, from the very northern part of Israel, all the way down the rift to the southern part, the soil in Israel lies on a thick layer of limestone, which is incredibly hard. Where the soil is thin, where the soil is shallow, the roots of a germinating seed can't go very deep. Where there is no root system, the plant gets scorched and dies prematurely or withers away. So the person with the shallow heart often has an emotional encounter with God. They'll have an emotional encounter with Jesus. They'll have an emotional encounter with church or the Bible. These are the people where their hearts start pounding and the tears well up and the feelings are intense because the story is so moving or the issue is so compelling. Under normal circumstances and healthy circumstances, the sun is a source of food and health for plant life. Maybe the very first scientific lesson I ever learned was in the fourth grade. We did a project on photosynthesis. We learned about how the sunlight converts energy into plant sugars so that they can grow. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the sun in our story, used in a healthy way, is going to promote growth. But the shallow make-believer, in the story, it speaks of persecution, opposition, affliction. Look what it says in verse 21. Yet he who has no root in himself but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles The person with the shallow heart, the make-believer, may have a great deal of emotion, but they lack will and mind. The problem with the hard heart was a lack of understanding. The problem with the shallow heart was a lack of depth immediately He stumbles. Why? Opposition. Persecution. Opposition. Persecution opposition, persecution, this is the person who goes to church, who reads their Bible, and then all of a sudden things didn't work out exactly how they had hoped. Haven't you ever wondered why all the churches in our country and all the Bible studies in our country and all the Christian radio in our country and all the TV and internet resources in our country, you would think that there would be more growing Christians, there would be more maturing Christians, there would be more discerning Christians, but growing, maturing, and discerning Christians are are few and far between. Why? Because of the shallow heart. Why? Because the shallow heart looks for what it can get. The shallow heart says, what can you give me? What can you provide for me? What can you give me? It's a mercenary heart. Remember, the mercenary is the person who's trained to fight but will sell himself to the highest bidder. Some so-called Christians sell themselves to the church or the congregation that will offer them the most amount of pleasure, the most amount of Entertainment, the least amount of pain, the most amount of reward for the least amount of sacrifice. Some Christians attempt to honor God or live for God, but as soon as the hardship comes, as soon as the pain comes, as soon as the fire comes, as soon as the disease comes, they bail. Like a cheap firecracker that makes only one sad explosion. They go off and they are spent. These are the people who used to go to church. Oh, I tried Jesus. But he didn't really work out for me. These are the people who expected Jesus to make their illness go away. Or their ship to come in. Or their loneliness to go away. Or their fear to go away. The shallow heart has little or no understanding of sin of repentance of not simply what it means to feel differently inside of your heart but to be different they they think that Jesus is just another opportunity to feel good about themselves And so, when they feel bad or the same, they stumble. I've met so many people who've started off in what looked like real faith, a real relationship, but theirs was just an emotional event. So many people will experience a momentary conviction of sin, cry real tears. But commitment involves the mind and the will. And so affliction like the sun brings growth to roots but burns and withers the plant that is growing just barely above the surface. One famous theologian wrote, quote, there's nothing more cheering than transformed Christian people, and there's nothing more disintegrating than people who have been merely brushed by Christianity, people who have sown with thousands of seeds, but in whose lives there's no depth. And that's why you can hear hundreds, thousands, of sermons. Great faith may accompany great emotion, but there also has to be an act of conviction that involves the mind and the will. And so Jesus moves to the crowded heart in verse 7. Look what it says. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. The thorns are weeds. We know that because Jesus gives the explanation in verse 22. Now he who received the seed among the thorns, read weeds, is he who hears the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the world and he becomes unfruitful. There are three weeds. Number one, the worry weed. Number two, The deceitfulness of riches. Number three, the desire for other things. And so the crowded heart is filled with all kinds of competition. Competition, choking, fighting, competing. It's competing for God's love. It's competing for God's grace and God's mercy in your heart. It's competing for your commitment. The worry weed are all the worries of the world. What's going to happen to me? How am I going to be able to go forward? What am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? How am I going to live? What about the future? What's going to happen to me? Just for fun, I looked up the word "worry" in my synonym finder. Here's what I found: "quote, fret, agonize, lose sleep over, stew, writhe." Stay awake at night. Also included was sweat blood, feel uneasy, be afraid, lose heart, despair, brood over, borrow trouble, bother, shake, fluster. Isn't that interesting? Worry turns out to be everything that we do when we don't trust the Lord when we refuse to trust him, when we refuse to trust him. The second noxious weed is the deceitfulness of riches. Another way of translating that is the false glamor of wealth. Many people think that if they just had the wealth of their neighbors, if they just had their car, their house, their life, then their joy would be their joy, their sorrows would go away. The Bible says that the desire to be rich can be both a snare and a hindrance. The Bible doesn't condemn wealth. The Bible simply says that wealth won't be able to give you what it promises to deliver. Remember, wealth promises security and stability It promises you notoriety and acceptance. The other weed that Jesus mentions is the desire for other things. You know the old saying. The more you have, the more you want. A wealthy billionaire was asked on a late night TV show the startling question. Because he had several billion dollars how much more do you need? His surprising answer, just a little more. Just a little bit more. I once heard that keeping up with the Joneses as buying what you don't need to impress people that you don't like with money that you don't have. The crowded heart isn't a trusting heart. And it isn't a believing heart. And it isn't a faithful heart. And it isn't a fruitful heart. The Bible says that you can't serve two masters. Either you're going to love the one and hate the other, or you're going to cling to the one and despise the other. No one can serve two masters. Or three monsters. Worry the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. And look at what Jesus says about the fruitful heart. He says, quote, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The seed of the word of God doesn't simply bounce off the surface of the fruitful heart. It takes root. The fruitful heart, the word of God, penetrates. It grows. It produces change. It doesn't grow for a season only to die when the sun comes out or when the heat gets hot or the affliction or the persecution arises. It's not divided by competition. It's not strangled by distraction. The fruitful heart produces A harvest of Christian character. The fruitful heart looks like the fruit of the spirit. Jesus wants to make sure that you're really listening. And that's why he says in verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The fruitful heart hears the word of God. The fruitful heart receives the word of God. The fruitful heart then produces a harvest. And I want to point something out to you. This is the only heart that does. The hard heart doesn't. The shallow heart doesn't. Fruit in the Bible, remember, speaks of character. Unlike the hard heart, the fruitful heart is soft. In contrast to the shallow heart, the fruitful heart is deep. In contrast to the crowded heart, the fruitful heart is open, available. The fruitful heart is soft. The fruitful heart is deep. The fruitful heart is clean. In Galatians 5.22 it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and longsuffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such there is no law. Plowing. There's no plowing. Why is there no plowing? Because the fruitful heart is open, available, soft. And deep, the fruitful heart knows about sin. The fruitful heart embraces repentance. The fruitful heart is ready to enter into commitment. The fruitful heart hears the gospel, but also shares the gospel. And so the gospel will pro- produce 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. The fruitful heart Will communicate not just simply the character of Christ, but invite everyone who's willing to listen into that. The three hearts had three enemies. Just in closing, I just want to point out a couple of things to you. The enemy of the crowded heart, that was the world. The enemy of the shallow heart, that was the flesh. The enemy of the hard heart, that was the devil. Nothing's changed. Those are your three great enemies. The world, the flesh, the devil. But according to the Bible, you have three great champions, as I'm fond of telling you over and over again. The Father has overcome the world. The Son has overcome Satan. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of the believer. You have a mechanism, a provision that's been given to you for all that stands against you. How will you hear the word and receive the word of God? This is the central statement that Jesus is making to the people that he's speaking to you to. It all depends on your heart. It always depended on your heart. The sower is not the problem. And neither is the seed. Do you have a hard heart? Then perhaps the soil needs to be broken up. Do you have a shallow heart? Do you only respond to the emotional plea? Is it only if your heart strings are tugged Is it only if the worship and the word are such that you will respond? Perhaps you need depth and conviction to come alongside your emotion. Is your heart crowded? Do you feel your heart choked, crowded, with no room for Christ? You should ask yourself some serious questions. Number one, what's my attitude towards the Word of God? Number two, what is the condition of the soil of my heart? Hard, shallow, crowded, or fruitful? Number three, what fruit has come into my life lately? And number four, am I helping others bear fruit? No wonder Jesus says, pay attention. Pay attention to what you hear. Jesus invites us, pay attention with a soft heart. Pay attention with a deep heart. Pay attention with a clean heart. You know, I heard the story of a little boy named Joey. Joey was five years old, and his dad constantly told him, Joey, I need you that when you're in my office to stay away from the glass case that's in my study. Don't ever open the case and don't ever take out the vase. The vase is very important, and it's very valuable. And one day Joey went to the thrifty drugstore, store and he saw a vase and it looked almost identical to the one in his dad's glass case. He looked at the price tag and he knew what $3.98 looked like on a price tag, even though he was five years old. And he thought, well, that's not very valuable. He thought that his dad must be mistaken So he went home, and he opened the glass door, and he took out the vase, and as he was walking with the vase, he tripped on the carpet, and it broke into hundreds of pieces. And when his dad got home, he had to tell him. And the father said to him, son, that vase was very valuable, and he said, no, it isn't, dad. I saw one just at the thrifty drugstore for $3.98. We can replace it, no problem. And his dad said, no, this is a Ming vase. It's hundreds of years old, and it's incredibly valuable, and it's the only one known of its kind. And when it was sold at auction, it was sold at auction for $120,000. I told my boss that I would keep it here for safekeeping. And now we have to sell everything we owe. We have to sell everything to pay for the damage. And Joy looked at his father horrified, horrified at his foolishness, horrified that his father didn't kill kill him, amazed, amazed that his father would sacrifice everything to correct a mistake that he had made. And that's exactly what Jesus does for you. God sends Jesus to sacrifice himself. He gives everything. Because your sin, as far as God is concerned, isn't just simply a mistake, it is the assault. On the dignity and the majesty and the glory of God. And so God will sustain his perfect standard. You see, the truth is when you sin, you don't simply break yourself, you break everyone around you. We not only hurt ourselves, We hurt each other. And so God provides a savior. And so now we have the ability to march forward in our study of the parables. You ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that you would help us Lord, that if our hearts are hard, that you would break up the fallow ground. Lord, we pray that we would sense your presence. We would be convicted of our sin and we would be willing to turn. Lord, if our hearts are shallow and superficial, Lord, we pray that we would look for depth, conviction, support. That, Lord, you would strengthen our minds and our will so that we would understand and obey. And that, Lord, if our hearts are crowded, that, Lord, we could pull those pernicious weeds and make room so that fruit could grow. Lord, we pray that you would make us fruitful in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would help others bear fruit in their life. And we commit these things to you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all the saints said, Let's stand.